You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I, too, am on a path in which there have been and will be highs and lows. In reaching this incredible milestone, I have already benefited from great good fortune. And as I undertake the role of an associate justice, there is no doubt that I will have my share of pure bad luck. Following the formal investiture ceremony to mark her arrival last Friday, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson told a cheering audience at the Library of Congress that as the first black female justice, she feels like a role model for a younger generation. I have a seat at the table now and I'm ready to work. And she did just that in her first two days on the bench. Unlike other justices who've taken a back seat during their first oral arguments, Justice Jackson jumped right in, asking lots of questions and follow-ups, laying out her own views and even taking on her more conservative colleagues. In other words, the rookie justice schooled the court. Let me let me try to bring some enlightenment to it by asking it this way. <laughs> Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. So, Greg, she really dominated these first two days of arguments. In her first oral argument, she spoke more than 21 times. Yes, she has been very outspoken in court, and she's been very willing to kind of stake out a position. And that first case involved the scope of the Clean Water Act and whether it covers this property in Idaho that is nearby a lake and nearby a tributary to a lake, but doesn't directly abut the lake. And she made pretty clear in that case that her reading of the Clean Water Act was that it covered this sort of property. She's done that in other cases, too. She's very different from her predecessor, Stephen Breyer, who was much more openly kind of agonizing about how he might come down in a case. She's been pretty clear. Often the newest justices hold back a little. You're right that they have generally been or frequently been, you know, a little more reticent. You know, one difference is that Justice Jackson has had 
months to prepare for this opening week of the term. Some of the other justices, when they joined the court, like the two most recent ones, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, joined the court after the term had already started. So, you know, not every justice is the same. Certainly many of them come prepared and ready, and but she is especially so, especially ready to, to jump right in. I think a lot of people wanted to hear her voice and questioning on the Alabama redistricting case involving racial gerrymandering. Tell us about her questioning there or her comments. Yeah, she was very clear on a number of fronts there. I think most striking to me, she really took aim at this notion that the Constitution is colorblind and requires colorblindness when states are doing redistricting. And she talked about the history and the purpose of the post-Civil War amendments, the 14th and the 15th, and that includes equal protection clause in the 14th Amendment. And she said, you know, those were clearly race conscious. Those were, and statutes that were enacted at the time, were passed with an eye towards health helping explicitly black people, freed slaves. And she laid that out at some length. And, you know, that's very likely going to be putting her in conflict head on with some of the more conservative justices, both in this case and in the College Affirmative Action case the court will be hearing in a few weeks. Did she specifically take on some of the conservative justices, either directly or indirectly, Yeah, I'll start with the Clean Water Act case. There was an interesting moment there where Justice Gorsuch, one of the conservatives, was suggesting that people were at risk of criminal penalties being put in jail for violating the Clean Water Act without having a chance to really understand what the statute covered. And that prompted her to to prod the Justice Department lawyers to say, actually, there's a process that people can use to go to regulators and get a determination about whether they think they have jurisdiction over a piece of property. And so she said, there's no risk or exact words. So you're not really facing criminal liability without the opportunity to get an assessment from the government regarding your particular circumstances. So uh, directly rebutting Justice Gorsuch. And then in the voting rights case, she had an interesting question where she juxtaposed her thinking with what Justice Amy Coney Barrett had just expressed and basically asked the lawyer to say which of the two was framing the issue the right way. I know she wasn't on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals too long, but do you know if she was this aggressive on the D.C. Circuit? I do not know, June. You know, one big difference between most appeals court hearings and the Supreme Court argument is that in the appeals court, there's only three judges there, unless the court is sitting on bonk. And so a judge is more likely to take up a huge chunk of the argument. Here, she's just one of nine justices, but spoke more than any other justice in the four arguments this week, really took up a significant portion of the time. I'm wondering, did her voice dominate so much that it seemed perhaps a little over the top? And will it mean she's less likely to be able to negotiate behind the scenes, let's say, than Justice Kagan is? Yeah, well, she was not putting herself out there to be somebody who was trying to bridge the differences. That is for sure. That's the role that, as you say, Justice Kagan often plays. And we even saw that with Justice Sotomayor in one of the cases this week. Justice Sotomayor, most of the time in the past, has kind of done what Justice Jackson did, which is clearly stake out a position, even kind of make the case that the other side is looking at it all wrong. You know, it's hard to say exactly how this will affect Justice Jackson's role within the court. And, of course, this is all brand new, and it's going to evolve, and you know, I don't think anybody's going to get too locked in at this early stage. Now, liberal writer Ian Milheiser of Vox tweeted, give her a chance, and she's going to burn Scalia's legacy to the ground. But her style is very different from 
Justice Scalia's, isn't it? Well, it's very different, certainly. You know, so far as he's not as prone to wisecracks as exactly. But I, I will say this: you know, one thing I was really interested to see because we've not seen her in this role at all before. You know, we saw her at the confirmation testimony where she talked about her role as a lower court judge, where she's applying precedent and applying the law to the facts of a case. We haven't seen her being in a position where she might be an advocate for something, and she is starting to sound, at least in this first week, like more of an advocate and more of the kind of voice that the people who strongly supported her were were looking for. And that's unlike what most Supreme Court justices do, even when they've been on the bench for a long time. Yes, although you certainly see that with some of them. You know, you certainly would see Justice Scalia, you know, advocating for things up there. You certainly see Justice Sotomayor doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially at this moment where some of these cases, there is this kind of feeling of inevitability. You know which way the court's going to go. The conservatives have a 6-3 majority. And so the liberal justices may well be looking at the arguments as, here is my chance to say out loud why what it seems like the majority is about to do is, is totally wrong. Yeah, many people are predicting a lot of six to three decisions this term, but we'll have to see. And we'll see how active a questioner Justice Jackson is during next week's oral arguments. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, which has been called one of the most influential modern environmental... You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Pause. And one of the first cases on the Supreme Court's docket this term is one that could limit the reach of the act. It's a case in which an Idaho couple is waging a 15-year battle to build a house about 300 feet from Priest Lake in northern Idaho on land that federal regulators say is protected wetlands. My guest is Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. So what's been the effect of the Clean Water Act in the last 50 years? Well, the biggest benefit from the Clean Water Act has been cleaning up sewage. And it took over $10 billion of federal money, which these days doesn't even sound like that much, right? But through the 70s and 80s, you know, Congress was appropriating up to 90% grants to the states to install sewage treatment plants, which, which were turning our rivers into open sewers, literally. So one big benefit of the Clean Water Act has been reducing municipal pollution. The second one would be industrial pollution through the wastewater discharge permit program. And what we have there is probably something on the order of 90% compliance by industries of all kinds with these standards, these technology standards designed to remove both toxic and non-toxic pollutants from the water. That's been a success. Where the Clean Water Act has failed to achieve water quality throughout the country is for what we call non-point source pollution runoff from agriculture and forestry and roads and other things. And the thing about that is the Clean Water Act does not regulate non-point source. That's left completely to the states to deal with. 
And the reason we still have about 45% of the waters of the United States, rivers and lakes, not meeting standards is because of non-point source pollution. So the point is where the Clean Water Act has actually been applied and enforced, we've seen measurable improvement in water quality. And where the Clean Water Act has not applied and not regulated activities, we've not seen very much progress. So that's kind of where we are at the 50th anniversary. Tell us about this case. It involves the Sacketts. It's been going on for 15 years. They've already been to the Supreme Court once. Yeah, this is their second trip. They're represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation, who's providing pro bono free legal services, which is fine. But otherwise, it would have been beyond the means, I think, of the Sacketts or almost anybody else. And the first round, they won the right to challenge EPA's issuance of of a compliance order, an enforcement order, which told the Sacketts, you are filling a wetland, their property is right next to, within 300 feet, actually, of Priest Lake in the Idaho Panhandle, a lake, by the way, that's renowned for its water quality. It's where Lake Tahoe used to be in terms of purity. So it's it's a very popular lake. Anyway, their property lies close to it, and they were filling their property to build a house. And EPA, or it might have even been a Corps of Engineers inspector, was tipped off, I guess, that they were filling their property. And somebody showed up and took photos and said, you're filling a wetland. Stop it and restore, in other words, remove the fill into the wetland on your property. The Sackett, you know, of course, objected and challenged that. They won the first round in the Supreme Court. They won the right to challenge this compliance order. The, the, the law before the first round of Sackett was you could not challenge compliance orders until EPA actually took a specific enforcement action by filing a lawsuit, right? So the Sacketts won an important decision from the Supreme Court saying you have the right, any property owner has the right to challenge the assertion of federal jurisdiction. So the Sacketts did that. And they went back to Idaho Federal District Court and they had a multi-year case with a trial and witnesses and administrative record and all of that. And they lost. Okay, so the district court in Idaho said, no, this wetland uh, is a jurisdictional wetland under the Clean Water Act and explained why. And so the Sackets took an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit upheld the lower court and and expanded uh, the reasoning for why this is a federal wetland. And they cited the Ninth Circuit cited specifically to Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in this infamous case that we call Rapanos, this fractured decision of the Supreme Court where there was no majority decision. There was four votes in favor of Justice Scalia's what's called plurality opinion, four votes in favor of Justice then-Justice Stevens' dissent, and only one, Justice Kennedy, concurring in the judgment to remand the case, but not agreeing with Scalia's test. So long story short, the Ninth Circuit and all the other circuits that have looked at this question, which of the tests in the Rapanos case controls on the question of federal jurisdiction? All of the circuits have said you look to Kennedy. Some have said only Kennedy, but all of them have said you look first to Kennedy. And so the Supreme Court in the Sackett case now took review of the Ninth Circuit's decision and said, basically just framed the question open-endedly, did the Ninth Circuit apply the correct test for determining whether this wetland 
is covered by the Clean Water Act. So that's where we are right now. So, Pat, this is a bit wonky, dealing with how you define certain terms in the Clean Water Act. What was the focus in the oral arguments? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of focus on the question of adjacency. And the lower courts said this wetland is not only adjacent to Priest Lake, which, which everybody agrees, is what we call a traditionally navigable water. It's a water that's subject to Congress's Commerce Clause authority. And the wetland, as I said, is within 300 feet of the lake, okay? So it's close, close proximity. There are developed properties between the Sackett's property and the lake. So that came up a lot in the argument. What happens when you have something obstructing the flow of water from a particular wetland on, a, on someone's property and a navigable water body like Priest Lake. So that, that, that question came up. But there was also a question of whether the wetland, Sackett's property, was also adjacent to what some of the justices referred to as a tributary of a navigable creek called Kalispell Creek and what some of the other justices referred to as a ditch. So we have that kind of thing <laughs> That's going a difference. On. Yeah, is it a tributary or a ditch? Whatever. The point is there's a second kind of adjacency in this case, and that is, is it adjacent to this tributary or ditch, as we call it, right? And there was a lot of back and forth and a kind of a search for a more precise way of defining adjacency. How far away does it go? Justice Gorsuch was the one who really pushed this really hard. It's what we sometimes call, how long is the leash on the dog? You know, if you're walking a dog, right, and the dog is on a really long leash, and it's around the corner and it bites somebody, <laughs> are you liable? So we have these kinds of debates in law school all the, all the time. And Gorsuch kept saying, well, is three miles, is that adjacent? Four miles? Two miles? And he kept going like that until he finally gave up. And the Solicitor General said, well, it's not that simple, okay? You know, what he's used is a test of reasonable proximity and lots of discussion about what that means. Probably no clear emerging majority uh, from the justices on whether they were ready to accept a reasonable proximity test for adjacency. But that the adjacency issue got a lot of discussion. This is... Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's first oral argument as a justice, and a lot of times in the beginning, justices hold back, but she was an active questioner, as they say. Oh, boy, was she ever. Fourth question. Fourth question came from Justice Jackson. Amazing. For her (laughs) very first oral argument on the Supreme Court. She didn't waste any time, and she pressed her questions. I mean, I would say she's forward-leaning in the direction of the government's position on this case. But she asked hard questions of both sides. And like I said, several times she interjected herself. So she, she was not at all reluctant to get right in there right away. Could this turn out to be another West Virginia VEPA? I don't think it's going to go in the same way that West Virginia did, where the court, of course, formalized the so-called major questions doctrine. That never came up in this argument. This really isn't uh, a West Virginia-style question of statutory interpretation. This case turns more... You know, this is... The the question of 
EPA and the Corps of Engineers jurisdiction uh, under the Clean Water Act is, is a pretty classic uh, environmental regulatory kind of question that's come up over and over. I mean, the Supreme Court, this is the fourth case where the Supreme Court has had to wrestle with this question of federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. So, so unlike West Virginia, where Justice, Chief Justice Roberts was clearly concerned about the novelty of EPA's interpretation of the Clean Air Act. I mean, he was characterizing it, you know, as, as brand new and, and having major implications and relying on what he called an ancillary provision of the statute. We don't have any of that here. What we do have in the Clean Water Act and, and this ge- geographic jurisdiction question is a fiendishly complicated um, scientific question. At, 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 at the heart of it, it really is a line-drawing problem. Uh, where do you draw the line between federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction in a watershed? You know, how far up the watershed do you go, looking at smaller streams, headwater streams, as they're called, and their associated wetlands? And the Solicitor General did a very good job, Mr. Fletcher, uh, tr- answering questions, but it was clear that he wasn't satisfying everybody. Even Kagan, Justice Kagan, at one point said, well, you know, is there a, a, a position or a test that's somewhere between the one that the Sackets are arguing for and what EPA and the federal government is arguing for? I don't think she ever got a satisfactory answer to her question. I'm not sure there is one. Uh, you know, Fletcher kept saying, "There's, you know, if we try to draw a bright line, um, we're going to be attacked for picking an arbitrary line uh, because it varies so much across the country. You can imagine uh, the different climate between the East and the West, the different topography and so forth. So, you know, the court really wants something closer to a bright line sort of test. But it, it may not be possible. And what we get out of the Supreme Court is almost certainly going to have to be subject to further interpretation by EPA and the Corps, which is inv- they are involved right now in a two-stage rulemaking. They, they have one rule pending OMB approval at, uh, at any moment, any day. Um, and, and that's just the first uh, of two rulemakings that the agencies are are engaged in to try to refine this question of what wetlands are in, what wetlands are out, what streams are in, which ones are out, and so forth. It's it's a really, really complicated issue. So is it that when the wetlands is in the Clean Water Act, then the EPA can exercise jurisdiction? Yes. And, And of course, the real question here is, what does the term waters of the United States mean? So it gets even more complicated because this case is dealing with a wetland. But the question of whether the wetland is a water of the United States begs the question of, well, what is the waters of the United States? Justice Alito really zeroed in on that. And he kept saying, what do you mean by waters? You mean any place that's wet? Uh, is that jurisdictional? No, said the Solicitor General. We have a more calibrated test for that comes back to this whole business of adjacency and proximity and all that. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no clear way of defining categorically 
what are waters of the United States. And yet, that definition is what underlies all of the programs of the Clean Water Act. The planning, the permitting, the standard setting, the financial assistance, and the oil and hazardous waste bill provision, a whole bunch, a whole network of federal programs and money is tied to this definition of waters of the U.S. And of course, people are wondering why hasn't Congress stepped into this morass and clarified what it means by waters of the U.S.? And the answer is because Congress is incapable, it seems, of, res- of coming to agreement across the aisle on how to do that. Correct me if I'm wrong. You did not see then uh, a divide, a 6-3 divide, like conservatives versus liberals. You didn't necessarily see that here? I saw pretty clearly a divide between the liberal wing, which would be Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson, and what I would call the hard right wing, which would be Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. I did see a pretty dramatic split. I mean, you know, we're all reading tea leaves, okay? But I, I did see a split in those two camps. In the middle, though, where Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett might come down, those are harder to read for me anyway. And, of course, because it's a six to three, uh, majority with the conservative wing of the court, you need two. You need Roberts, probably for sure, and either Barrett or Kavanaugh, if the government is, is to prevail. Or to put it another way, if you don't get those two votes, then the Sacketts are going to prevail. But it will also turn on, even if the Sacketts, quote, win, it's still going to be, does the court finally adopt a test that's going to govern or not? And I think when they sit down and try to write an opinion in this case, they're going to find out it's going to be really hard. It was easy in West Virginia. It was easy because all that the conservatives had to say is EPA just doesn't have this authority, period. End of story. We don't have to quibble about how this authority would be exercised or not. They cannot require generation shifting to reduce carbon emissions, period, full stop. They get no deference. Um, and Congress has never explicitly addressed this question, and that's the end of it. The Sackett case is more complicated because, in fact, in 1977, Congress amended the Clean Water Act, and in that amendment, it's in Section 404G, Congress specifically referred to adjacent wetlands as being covered, you see? So there was a lot of talk about in the, in the argument What's the effect of the 1977 amendment? Did it codify uh, or ratify this adjacency requirement that the agencies had been using or not? And you couldn't get a clear sense of where five of the justices would come down on that. I think I know where three of them would, but I don't know where the other two would come from. So lots and lots of layers. Thanks, Pat. That's Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law.
And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.